Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different people come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. This season, we are talking about the book of John and what it means for our lives to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining Aaron and me in conversation today are Cheryl Wickham and Jill Blair. So we're glad to have the two of you with us today. And Cheryl, would you tell us a little bit about how you and Jill know one another? I will. My husband and I have often joked that actually we're distant relatives of the Blairs. Okay. As my children have gotten older, uh, we've taken to celebrating holidays like the week ahead of time. And then on the actual holiday, they celebrate with the other part of the family. And usually that works out great. You know, we travel or whatever. But one year when we were here and we you know, we're done with the holiday and everybody else was celebrating. Jill knew that and invited us to come be part of her family. So we've kind of been taken in, you know, been part of their grandparents and grandchildren and aunts and uncles and just been part of their family that way. But mostly we just have become dear sisters in the Lord as being part of the same women's Bible study for many years and just doing life together and praying for one another in that way. Did the two of y'all know each other before Jill invited you to come over? Did you know each other through Bible study? Yeah. You had yeah, established yeah. some of that relationship mm-hmm. and then shared yes. that. It's fun to be a part of each other's lives, both in Bible yeah. study and then enjoying each other's families and holidays and right. that sort of thing. Right. I love that. Well, we are going to start off with our first things first question like we normally do. And so you're going to answer the first things first question um, after you give a brief introduction of yourself. So the first things first question for today is who was the first person you talked to today and tell us about him or her. And Jill, go ahead and kick us off. Okay. My name is Jill Blair, and I came to First Presbyterian many years ago, right out of college. And after several years, I met David at uh, actually at the trash can in St. Andrew's Hall. <laughs> we were introduced there, so it's very romantic. And um, we married and had three children. The first two were daughters. The third one was our son. We went through many years of moving with his career and Uh, My current life stage is basically transitioning from all the things in the past, from um, homeschooling and helping with my husband's job and helping my parents, to transitioning to just every day, just saying, Lord, what today, as well as some other commitments. My husband, David, as I tell about him, is the first person that I spoke to this morning when I awakened. We've been married almost 40 years. He grew up in North Augusta. Uh, His first job out of college was a purser on a cruise ship, and actually he became a Christian on board after reading Mere Christianity That's cool. and um, many prayers of his mom and his brother. We came back here, uh, he came back here, excuse me, and we met and then moved around a lot with his career and then returned to this area in 1999 and opened up a home building business. And we have loved living here again. Yeah, I like how you talk about meeting. So you met at First Press. For mm-hmm. those who are listening and don't know that St. Andrews is one of the names we have for a big room in our church. And so the fact that you remember meeting him at the trash can cracks me <laughs> up. <laughs> it's very romantic. Obviously yes. it was, if you remember so clearly. 
the place. It's just funny to see that trash can today. Oh, I know it's a different one, but it's the same spot. Oh, we have three children also. Two of them live here, and our oldest son lives in Michigan. And we have eight grandchildren. David and I are both retired. He was a physical therapist, and I was a surgical nurse. And I retired to play full-time grandma, but now most of my grandchildren are in middle school, high school, or older, and are very busy with you know, mm-hmm. after school sports and homework and things. So I find that um, I have a lot more time to, you know, we love the outdoors, love hiking, um, don't have a green thumb, but I love planting things. <laughs> and when we're not out, when I'm not outside, uh, you'll find me in my sewing room. I spend a great deal of time quilting. That's kind of my passion right now. I have a couple of kids in the neighborhood that come over to make quilts and my grandchildren and my niece's children. And um, also, I have several groups that meet at my house. I have some of the ladies from my quilt guild I sew with once a week. And um, several of the members of my smocking guild come over to sew with me um, about once a week. And I found that those times are just really a good way to get to know people. You know, everybody is struggling, I found out. And, you know, there's problems in every life and just you know it's just a good way to get together with people and to say yes I've struggled this way and this is how the Lord's gotten me through it and it's just been a fun kind of ministry there you're doing something with your hands that mm-hmm. you're involved in, you're creating, it's therapeutic, probably. It wouldn't be for me because I'd be like, <laughs> right. I don't know what I am doing with my <laughs> yeah. hands. But if you know what you're doing, <laughs> it is mm-hmm. all of those those things. And then yes. you get to, in the midst of doing that, have those deeper conversations that may not come as easily if you're just sitting face-to-face over a cup of coffee. But when you're, I find sometimes when I'm doing something, I like to walk with people then it's easier for me to maybe converse in some of those ways. And I love that you're passing it on to the younger generation. I mean, how many younger people know how to quilt? Not very yeah. many. So right, that's great. Right. That's one of the first things I remember about knowing. I, I do love to quilt. I haven't done it in quite a bit, but I remember... You, you being on my radar and that you knew how to quilt. Yeah. Oh, and the first person that I met, you know, it's just David and me at home, and we don't even have a dog anymore. Oh, we lost yeah. him several years ago. So he was the first person that I talked to. You know, we just kind of, well, what are we going to do today? Oh, our schedule's so busy. I just don't know where to start, you know. But Are you being facetious? Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he plays softball, um, senior softball, so that. It's kind of what where his passion is, what keeps him busy. He's a great softball player. Just, I mean, yeah. my husband has commented on that multiple times. Even as he's gotten older, his passion for softball has not faded. And he gets out there and gets after it. Where do they play? I'm so curious. Well, he plays with the local rec league in okay. North Augusta. And then he's also belongs to a team based out of Knoxville, Tennessee, and um, they go to ISSA, International Senior Softball Association, has tournaments all over the United States, and and so we travel to, you know, go to games wherever. Travel ball is not just for the young. How about that? (laughs) Yeah. That's fun. Sometimes it's Benjamin, our third son that I first speak to. He's our king of chill is what we call him in our family. (laughs) He just knows how to relax. He knows how to snuggle. So he'll come in early, like free dawn, you know, maybe 545 and want to snuggle down. Um, But this morning it was Brad. He always, he's our early riser and is usually out of the house before I'm up. And he um, just comes by and kisses me goodbye and says, have a great day at work. (laughs) 
sweet. So yeah, he's he needs no sleep. So so Brad and I have been married for 15 years in August. We're going to celebrate 15 years. We actually got married here. That's how we ended up at this church is because it was beautiful. And I wanted to get married in a beautiful church. That. Yeah. You know, really deep stuff. And we've stuck around and it's been great. And he is just a great teammate to be in life with. So just a good partner and loves big and he's the king of fun in our family. Like he's Captain Fun, just does all the fun things and makes life memorable and exciting and just very grateful for him in our lives. Have we said on the podcast before that you call him St. Brad? St. Brad, yes. Can we say that? Oh, St. Brad. (laughs) Oh, that's great. He's too good to me. Yes, it's true. Mm, I love that. That's awesome. All right, well, we're all going to share the same story because my man is the first person I talked to this morning, too, because he has been in a good pattern of getting up early with me to teach um, early morning classes. For I've been teaching early morning classes for a long time. I've said that before on the podcast. But, anyway, you know, maybe in the last two years, he's gotten real regular about getting up with me. So it's an early, an early up and at him, and he's usually <laughs> kind of groggy. But I have found that we really enjoy the gym I teach at is really not very far from our house. So I've really, we those three minutes, we make them count. I mean, we might be <laughs> decompressing about something that happened the day before or thinking about the schedule for what's to come. But it, when he sleeps in occasionally because he goes to bed real late at times, then I miss those times, like just, just to kind of kick <laughs> off the day with him and get ourselves settled together. So his name is John. My husband's name is John. He's a associate pastor here at First Prez. And the other thing I like about him being the first person I talk to or when he goes to class with me in the mornings is it's always dark. And so when he doesn't go with me, I always feel a little bit less protected. But when he does go with me, I don't even think about it. I just kind of walk out into the dark and feel good about it. And I was thinking that today in our passage, we're going to be talking from John chapter 18, verses 1 through 40. If you haven't read this passage yet and you're listening, I suggest you hit the pause button and read it and then come back and join our conversation. It's 40 verses and in order to pick up on our conversation and understand where we're going, it really helps to have those 40 verses that you've actually read for yourself. So you'll realize as you're reading those verses that we're coming to a dark time and um, a dark time in Jesus's life, a dark time in redemptive history, a dark time for the disciples. And it tells the account of the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. While it is a dark time for the disciples, it's an even darker time for Jesus. Yet in the midst of all that Jesus is facing, his thoughts aren't for himself, but for protecting and providing for his disciples as he faithfully continues to obey the will of the Father uh, to bring him glory through his death and resurrection. So John chapter 18, it begins with this sentence. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kedron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So what words had Jesus just spoken? It's the words of chapters 13 through 17 in John, some of which we've been talking about in the last two podcasts. And they were words of truth. They were words of promise, words of insight, words of warning, words of comfort, words of protection, and most importantly, words of prayer. Jesus has spoken in these chapters of his approaching hour when he will be lifted up, crucified, and glorified for the sins of mankind. He's spoken truthfully about how this hour will affect his disciples, that they would be troubled in their hearts, that they would mourn, they would weep, they would lament. He's spoken truthfully to them about the joy that will come to them through that sadness, the joy of salvation. He's spoken truthfully about the spiritual protection that they will be provided in the midst of their sorrow, confusion, and weakness of faith. He's spoken truthfully about the benefits they will receive from the ministry of the Holy Spirit as a result of Jesus' going back to the Father. 
He's spoken truthfully about the union they will experience with him, with the Father, and with one another through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he's spoken all of these things in his prayers out loud so that they will know that all he predicts, all he promises, and all he provides comes to them from God the Father and the intercessory work of the Son. And then, after these words, after Jesus has provided all the disciples need in order to endure what is about to occur, he himself walks into the pain of the hour that is at hand. So, Aaron, why don't you paint the scene for us a little bit? What's happening here at the beginning of chapter 18 as they go into the garden? All right. So first of all, I want to just give us a minute to think about like this garden imagery, like why that's important. I think that we should reflect on that and realize that there is some um, intentional connection there. Like John is drawing our attention to that. Um, The fact that it is night and we see this, uh, what we're about to see is an illegal trial go down at night. I think that that deserves some thought and contemplation. Jesus has just washed the feet of the disciples and he's instituted the Eucharist or what what we know is the Lord's Supper, and we would celebrate that today as Maundy Thursday. So this is the night that Jesus is betrayed by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. So the setting of that, I think, was interesting, too. I did a little cross-reference checks on that, and just the Kedron Valley is where we see David fleeing Absalom. And if you're a member at First Pres and we're going through Second Samuel, you will know that you know, Absalom, the son, these are his kindred that he they should have been on his side. So it's interesting that we see these Jewish officers, the chief priests, the Pharisees coming to Jesus outside of the city. And again, we see that they should have been they should have known who he was. They should have been tracking with him. They should have known that he was the truth. And similar to Absalom not being on David's side coming up at odds at him. We see this with the Jewish people as well. So I find that super interesting that that parallel is drawn. Also, you see some of the other good kings like Asa, Josiah, uh, making some reforms there, celebrating Passover there. So we see these purification times happening in the Old Testament. So some of that's going on here. We see Jesus preparing to make purification for our sins. So I think some of those important Old Testament things that we can reflect on and just make a little more sense, you know, give a little more context to what's going on here. And Jesus, we know him to not waste one sentence or location or timing that these are things that he's intentionally put into play, that he's coming to the cross on this Passover week when they're looking for a deliverer. And even later in the the chapter, chapter 18, we see that a lot of our English renderings will say that he's handed over. But the Greek here is kind of pointing to he's been delivered over. So it's like even that theme of just the deliverer, Aaron, as you paint that scene and make all of those connections, which I always love that you make those connections, it's making me realize, again, just the fact that you could be in that scene and think it's all coming apart, right? It's all unraveling. Darkness is winning. Um, Those who are opposed to Jesus that seem to be in power, that carry the clubs and the swords and all those sorts of things, the high priest is in charge at the time that that power is overcoming Jesus. But the reality that you see is Jesus is in absolute sovereign control. I mean, Mm -hmm. of course, a couple of times it says this was to fulfill what was already written. This was to fulfill what was already written. And so even though the hour is dark, it is absolutely not outside of his control. He very much is in control and very purposeful Mm -hmm. with what's going on. Yeah, I think too, I mean, so much of this is just identity. Like there's so much identity going on in this uh, chapter, not just of Jesus. Like he's clearly identifying as the I am, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the world. And 
I think it's interesting that you see maybe just the mercenaries, the pronoun makes it a little unclear, but maybe it's the mercenaries, maybe it's the whole Jewish guard that's there to arrest Jesus, falling back and falling Mm -hmm. to the ground. So even though Jesus is arrested and bound, he's going willingly. Mm -hmm. His power is on clear display. Even his enemies are falling to the ground in his Mm -hmm. presence. Last to look at in that passage. Yeah. Jill and Cheryl, what did y'all find in this passage that surprised you or interested you? When I'm reading, I tend to go on wild goose chases. There will be something that just gets my interest and off I go. And the thing that I looked at was the cup. And from verse 11, where uh, Peter has cut the ear off of Malchus and Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And the footnotes and things that you read says that the cup points to suffering and the wrath of God. And I then noticed that there were a lot of other verses that were mentioned as well. And so I went uh, looking to just see what they were talking about exactly. And the first thing I saw was that it was a note actually from Psalm 16:5, And it was saying that to the godly, the Lord offers a cup of blessings or salvation, but to the wicked, he makes them drink from the cup of wrath. And I just had never really consciously thought of that at all. And so I looked at the verses, and Jeremiah twenty five fifteen says, The Lord says, Take the cup from my hand filled with wine from of my wrath, and make all nations to whom I send you drink it. And then in Revelation sixteen nineteen, and then also fourteen ten, it's talking about anybody who worships the beast and has his mark, he will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out with a cup of his wrath. And then the other one says, God remembered Babylon the great and gave him the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. And so after reading those verses, it really hit me that I had never totally gotten what that meant. I kind of thought about it as the cup was just a symbol for yuckiness that was coming, you know, the the awfulness of the situation. I didn't really realize how, and maybe I'm making an assumption here, but I've always known his physical suffering occurred on the cross. I never thought about if you were sinless, what it might be like Mm. to have to take in something that was the fury of God's Mm -hmm. wrath against Mm -hmm. sin. So Mm -hmm. just looking at those verses and thinking about it made the cup that he chose to take. And he also had asked that it not be, you know, that he didn't have to do it and in the garden. And, um, and yet, you know, now he is totally, he is, he is going to do that. And he actually is um, reprimanding Peter for what he did because he knows he has to do it. So it made me appreciate his sacrifice even more. Mm. When, you know, this whole situation that was happening, um, you know, the mob was coming. And what first kind of stood out to me was, you know, they came, they're looking for Jesus, and he goes out to meet them and, you know, says, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And what struck me was when he said that, you know, I'm who you're looking for, you would think, okay, the mob would say, okay, grab him quick before he gets away. Let's tie him up. You know, we've got him now. But instead, you know, they drew back and fell to the ground. Whenever evil, um, you know, is confronted by 
Jesus by the sinless God, you know, then they are driven back and mm. and fallen. You know, the darkness of what they were about to do couldn't stand in the light of, mm. of him. You just saw his divine authority and his power revealed. And then I saw, you know, Peter is drawing out the sword. You know, he's going to defend him. And he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And, you know, this is just a servant, but he's named, you know, his name is given. And then Jesus, you know, says, Peter, put your sword away. And he takes that ear and puts it back. And I just thought about the whole symbolism that we've seen in the book of John. When Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, the next miracle he did was to restore sight to the blind man. And it just seemed like he was saying, Malchus is important to me, even though he's just a servant here, probably just was made to come. But let's restore his hearing, you know, even in what he was facing, Jesus longed to give those ones another chance to hear the gospel. And he just was there to restore, you know, not only his hearing, but his life and just how he longs to do that for each one of us. Yeah, so many interesting things to double click on here. Jill, I love that you picked up on this idea of the cup, that he is both the blessing and that he will pour out his blessing of that cup and he will receive the glory and honor and exaltation that he deserves. And you mentioned this too, Cheryl, like how even in, in the end, it is a foreshadowing of those, those opposing him and there in the garden that in the end that every knee will bow. Mm-hmm. And I think that we see that clearly there, but he's also taking on the curse to tie back into that cup idea. So he's taking on the curse, the one, the only one that did not deserve to take on the curse of wickedness. He's the one that's taking that on for us. And I think we talked about that a little bit when we were looking at Nicodemus, that you see that serpent on the pole theme, referencing back to numbers that the serpent, both being the, the blessing of healing, but also the curse that was um, about them. And so here we see Jesus that he is in, in this cup idea, like he's both the blessing and taking on the curse for us. So super interesting there to think of that. Love that you pulled that out. Another part of this scripture that was interesting to me, when you start reconciling this with the synoptic gospels, you do see him in the, both of y'all mentioned the Garden of Gethsemane and how he's asking for this cup to pass because he knows that when he's taking on that curse and the sin of the world, that that means that there is in some way that our finite minds cannot understand, there is a separation from God the Father. I kind of looked at this um, kind of from the disciples' background, you know, who they were. You know, they had been with Jesus for three years intimately with him. They had just shared the Passover. He'd given them his last message, his last prayer. They were in the garden now where they often met to pray. And he had said, you know, don't be troubled. You can trust me. But all of a sudden now they're faced with this angry mob, you know, coming. And even though they'd been with Jesus, I think their background, you know, clouded their understanding of what was happening because most of them were, you know, grown up Jewish boys. They'd grown up in this, going to the synagogue, study the Torah. They knew the prophecies that were pointing to a Messiah coming. But I think in their minds, they, they thought, we're God's chosen people. You know, our nation was chosen by God, and now, you know, this is going to happen to restore the glory that was our nation. And so, you know, all of a sudden, when this wasn't turning out the way they thought, um, it just kind of reminded me of 
my background, you know, I grew up in a church that we thought we were the only true church. You know, we studied the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, and I knew exactly what was going to happen, you know, in the end times, and I knew exactly what I needed to do to be good enough, you know, to be, uh, to stay part of, you know, that, those chosen people. And, you know, my focus was on the work that I did, not the work that Jesus was here getting ready to accomplish, you know, for me. And when I discovered that what I'd believed all my life was wrong, when, you know, the light of the gospel shone into my heart, you know, it was hard because it wasn't at all what I had believed. And, you know, so I kind of felt like I could kind of relate to the disciples that way. But, you know, when you finally change your focus you know, on him and know no matter what it is, even if you can't understand it, he's in charge. You can trust him, and that, you know, can be life-changing. In looking at the other characters in the story, um, as Cheryl just covered the disciples, I was thinking about the soldiers and the officials and just thinking about uh, Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate. Obviously, they had not really known who Jesus was. They had not met him, but they, the ones who came to the garden were being sent out there to do their work. And then I was thinking, what would they have known? Maybe they would have heard things about Jesus already. Maybe in hearing about that, they would have known that the Jews were really upset and not liking at all the fact that he had followers and was doing miracles. Maybe some of the people who had come to the garden thought he was crazy because he could, you know, claim all these different things, and then he could actually do them. And I also was thinking about for Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate, they just kind of seemed to have almost a background listening uh, ability, as in they they weren't really making any charges. They just wanted to hear him out. And so then I was thinking, well, what happened after they heard his words? After they saw him... I saw that the soldiers and the officials basically just answered his question, that they were looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And then he told them to basically let everybody else go because they had him, and they obeyed him, as far as we know, and and even did not come after Peter. And they also, when they heard him say, I am he, they fell backwards as we known and have talked about today. But that's a big deal to think that these were people who were coming to charge somebody and not charge them with the crime, but charge on them in a quiet place that they thought that he wouldn't be expecting them. And yet they were in awe and fell backwards. And then also that the uh, Annas, Caiaphas, and Pilate basically saw no fault in him. So they heard his words, they saw him and they had preconceived notions, but I think after they saw him and then heard him and realized he really was innocent, I think they probably were thinking, what is the big deal? Well, you know, I think you, when you're talking about Annas and Caiaphas, they were the, Caiaphas was the high priest at the time, and Annas was his stepfather. So I do actually think that they did know what the big deal was in Mm -hmm. the sense that they very much were this is he's blaspheming he's making himself out to be god um but we want our hands clean yeah we want our hands clean exactly so i'm gonna pass them off to you or i'm gonna pass them off to you and we want to pass them off to rome because we don't have the power to execute and our law does their law didn't allow for them 
to execute someone, and that's what they want done with him. They've really been plotting that from close to the beginning of Jesus's ministry. He's right. ticked them off in that way that whole time. And then when you think about Rome and you think about Pilate, I do think what you're saying is true there. He doesn't know exactly what to make of him. And as he's asking Jesus questions and Jesus is answering him in a way that is intended for Pilate mm-hmm. to hear, um, he doesn't know exactly what to do with him either. But it's it's evident that Jesus, again, is very much in control. Like the testimony that Jesus is giving mm-hmm. is true. It is um, in some ways pursuant of even those who are opposed to him. And it is very much in following, in step with what he knows from the Father, what he has received, what he knows to be true. And he doesn't deviate from it at all, from that testimony. He holds absolutely fast to it in the face of various types of opposition, strong opposition. And I just, my person I was thinking about was Peter, you know, just the contrast here between Peter and Jesus and, you know, what we can resonate with, with Peter is he seems so set on earlier in John, you know, I'm not going to leave you. I would never forsake you. I will follow you to death. Mm -hmm. I'm pulling out my sword. I'm cutting off the ear. I'm ready to fight. But when Jesus is taken into custody, I don't know what switch that flips in in Peter's head, but does it seem like the one who is going to be in power is no longer in power? And now I don't feel as secure. I don't know, but he follows him in. He gets, there was another disciple there that's not named. It may be John. It may not be who knew the high priest and was allowed in. And so he goes and asks permission for Peter to be allowed in. And that servant girl opens the door for him. He wouldn't have been able to go in unless he'd had permission. And the first thing she says is are you one of his followers too and the first thing he says is nope i'm not and you you just think in that moment in the face in that place of opposition he shifts he he denies like i resonate with that like in the face of people's opposition towards me whether i feel like they're just you know on a lower level they disapprove of me or they could harm me or whatever I want to capitulate. Like I, I want to say whatever it is that um, keeps me in good standing or good stead. And I don't know exactly all the things that motivated Peter um, to deny, but you think I could land there and just say, oh my gosh, I'm so much like Peter. But it's not really about Peter in this passage. It just highlights that while Peter is denying in his own weakness, Jesus is testifying. He is holding to that truth the whole way through in order that through that testimony he will ultimately end up on the cross and so that and that through his cross he's providing salvation for the ones who cannot hold fast and the ones who will fall away and tonight he's providing that salvation for peter when peter can't even adhere to christ and i just thought there really it could seem like a hopeless passage it's dark and People run away and people deny, but it's not because Jesus holds to that perfectly. And by doing that, secures for us our salvation and grants to us the Holy Spirit. And, you know, Peter becomes a courageous man in a lot of ways because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that Christ secures for him. So I thought I was encouraged by that. I resonated with Peter. And yeah, I was encouraged. Like, Lord, you haven't left me alone in that. You have given me your spirit. And so I don't have to be bound uh, to my fear. What is it that Jesus is saying about himself or showing about himself in the passage? And what ways did his words further challenge or encourage your belief in him as the Christ, the Son of God? 
As I looked at it, I know we've mentioned it uh, today some, but the fact that he, in the very beginning, after he has prayed, he gets up and he is going to a place that he knows what will happen. He knows everything about it. And when they come after him, he totally takes charge. It's so obvious that he is now decisively knowing. I mean, he's been knowing that now is the time, but he knew everything that would happen and even goes forward. I mean, if you're somebody who's being hunted, you would not go out to meet the people who are coming for you. You know, you would typically think you would hide behind, but he didn't. And just the words of I am he, and especially with all the other I am's, you know, beginning in Mo, uh, with Moses and God, you know, telling him I am. And then as we've studied in the book of John, it's just so amazing to think about those words and and the connection between what we know in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So that furthers my faith, I guess you would say. The fact that he took charge, his, the very words that he used, he was very strong, you know, who is it that you want? And although he knew it, they said it twice, and I just kind of got tickled as I was thinking the second time he asked them, they probably were still on the ground. I mean, it, when you read it, it sounds like, you know, they fall back, they're on the ground, and then he asks them, who is it you want again? And I'm thinking, how embarrassing that would be, you know, to be lying there on the <laughs> ground, and, you know, he's asking him again. Um, it's just like he is totally in control of that situation, just the conversations. And then I thought it was just really sweet also how he protected them by saying, if you you have me, that's who you came for, now let them go. And obviously, they obeyed him, because we don't hear anything about any repercussions of that. And then, um, and again, mentioning the, the um, drinking of the cup that he talked about. And I used to think that the crucifixion was kind of done to him. And yet, reading just this passage is so clear that he gave himself up, that it had always been planned. I mean, we know that, but it's such a visual image when you're reading this about, you know, how he literally gave himself up and it was always to be like this. So to me, this furthered my faith and belief in Christ. Hmm. I think those same words, you know, when he said, I am he, that just kind of struck me where, you know, we're all looking for something in our lives. And, you know, the mob came looking for him and he said, I'm, I'm the one you want. And, you know, ultimately he's who, you know, we're all looking for. And, you know, then when he was before Pilate, Pilate said, you know, who are you? And, um, you know, are you a king? You know, what, what, why are they bringing you to me? You know, who, who are you? And Jesus, you know, replied, yes, I am the king. This is the reason that I was born. He said, this is why I came into the world. He's, he is the one, you know, that's the answer to the struggles and the issues that, that we have. And this was the plan that was put in place before the world was even formed. And, you know, he said, you're not sneaking up on me in the middle of the night. You know, this was this was my plan all along to uh, bring restoration. And yes, I am the king, but, you know, my kingdom isn't anything that you can dream of, anything that you can imagine. And I think that, you know, if, if God was something that I could imagine, that I could understand, you know, then he wouldn't be God. And, um, but knowing that he's far more than, you know, I could ask or think, you know, that's the kind of God that, you know, that you can rely on and that you can trust. 
I had some similar thoughts to that as well. Cheryl, just thinking of like if our story is that we have a God who is a God with us, God that wants to dwell with us in the garden, that wants to commune, commune with us. And it's our wickedness that separates that, that, that we are the one who by our sinfulness give up his, the fullness of his presence. And Jesus is here in this moment. I mean, in three days time, he will rest. Like right now we see that his his moment of suffering, the cup of wrath is upon him. But we do know that ultimately he will be his we will see his resurrection and there will be great joy for those of us who are willing to submit to him and bow our knee to him willingly. So I think that we've um, touched on so much of the goodness of this passage. There's just so much more to mine. I uh, want us all to just take time to really dig in and meditate over the things that are going on here in this very important moment. And also just as we are personally approaching Holy Week right now in real time. So I think that it is just something worth dwelling on and meditating. So if you ladies will share with us, what are some of the implications of this text for your life? Just saw so many things in this passage. Um, one thing that really stood out to me was I kind of looked at Peter. You know, Peter was so quick in the garden there with the mob, you know, to pull out his sword and defend the Lord. And um, and Jesus tells him, put your sword away. You know, I've got this. And thinking about that, I thought, you know, Peter's not, wasn't wrong necessarily, because sometimes we are called to fearlessly and courageously defend, you know, our faith and our Savior. But a lot of times, just like Peter, we're going to get it wrong. But sadly, I find, you know, myself, I'm not going to be Peter. I'm going to be sneaking, trying to get to the back of the crowd, um, you know, kind of blend in, hope nobody asks me anything, seeing opportunities when I could have spoken up and, you know, and I didn't. You know, that's a way that I find myself, you know, denying my Lord, you know, too. But Jesus, you know, says, you know, put your sword away. You know, I've got this. You can rest, you know, in me. You know, I'm imagining the disciples just looking at the utter horror of that situation and probably fearing for their very lives and, um, you know, total unknown of what the future, you know, it was going to bring because things were just totally crumbling around them. And, you know, we face, you know, those same issues in our lives. And um, I think, you know, my default setting a lot of times is to be anxious and to be worried about things that are happening. And just put a little plug in here for small groups. If y'all aren't part of one, you need to find one because they, um, you know, my Bible study ladies are just so helpful, you know, in um, texting encouragements and just praying for one another. And during a particularly stressful time in my life, you know, one of the ladies uh, texted, you know, read Psalm 2. And that's become just a dear passage, you know, for my heart. It's the passage where, you know, it says nations are plotting and conspiring, you know, they're planning to do evil, but God's not worried, you know, he's laughing at them because his son is already enthroned in the highest heaven. You know, evil is defeated. God's in charge. And um, no matter, you know, what our circumstances are, you know, Jesus says, put your sword away. You know, I've got this. What he does is always going to be for our good and, you know, for his glory. 
Mm-hmm. I love that. And what they could have understood at the time was the circumstance that they wanted to be delivered from, which makes a lot of sense. They're not a very good circumstance. But just what Jesus knows, that ultimate deliverance that he's bringing to them is a deliverance from that sin that rests inside of them. That's not on the outside or found in the mob or found um, in those who oppose Jesus outwardly, but from our own sinful self that wants to rebel and to crucify. And I think, too, obviously, yeah, the delivering us from the wickedness in us and the wickedness around us, but also just inviting us into his glory, inviting us into his presence, unity with the Father. That is the Savior that we have come to know and love. As I was looking at it, and I realize this goes back into uh, chapter 17 and, uh, verses, and chapters even before that, But it was the preparation that Jesus took after Judas went out to prepare the disciples by praying and just talking to them because he knew what was coming and he knew how hard it would be and he knew how we as humans think and process awful things and how we feel about them. And I saw examples, I guess I would say, from how Jesus had prayed knowing that uh, he was in compassion, looking ahead, telling them what they needed to know. It made me want, as I pray for someone or even pray for myself, to really look at how I feel about something, but yet to always remember that he sent the counselor, the Holy Spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us himself. And and for us not to be afraid and not to have a troubled heart. And I think just the fact that we do oftentimes makes me realize how much I need to go back to thinking of how Jesus has given us everything we need, and he actually does pray for us. It also makes me think about how Jesus spoke truth. And granted, you know, I'll never know all that he knows. We, we couldn't. But he does give us his word, and it makes me want to know that more so that I can actually pray it more, pray the things that are appropriate for somebody or for myself uh, according to what God says. And then how he prepared them, but he also prepared himself by going to the garden and then praying and wanting the cup to pass asking if it could, but then knowing that it would not, and that when it was time, it was time. And to boldly go out and do what he knew he had to do. So it made me think of how you may get news of something that's difficult or something you have to do that you really didn't want to have to do or life just hasn't turned out the way you thought. And it's okay to ask him for something different. He does not mind at all. But if he says no, or it's a long delay, we still are to pray. And then when we know it's time for, for whatever it is, we're to go and to do just as he did. And I guess the bottom line would be that God always has a perfect plan and we can trust God as he told his disciples to do, you know, trust in God and trust in me also. So it for me, the implication was in prayer to think more about how someone's feeling or how I feel. Also to be knowledgeable and also realize truly that it's okay to tell God how we feel about things and to ask for relief if he would give it. But then if not, to proceed with whatever it is that he's calling us to do and to trust him. 
That's helpful, Jill, just to think that our peace comes not with our desired outcome, but it comes from knowing the Father's presence with us. So good. Cheryl and Jill, thank you for both joining us today. Listeners, we hope you will join us again. Courtney Hatcher and Pat Dowdy will be joining us to talk about John 20 and the resurrected Jesus. Hope you'll listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian wife she sees. It is the Lord who rises with healing in His wings. When comforts are declining, He grants the soul again. A season of your shining to cheer it after the rain. 